Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. Welcome everybody. We have much to discuss today. Uh, Hopefully we'll have time for it all. I'd like to start with the ongoing conversation around Amazon's HQ2, specifically in New York City. As we know, Amazon and NYC, sadly for some, joyously for others, officially parted ways a few weeks ago, but it looks like one of those relationships that won't die or at least is dying very slowly. Uh, there's a lot at stake for New York City, including some might say the identity of the city itself. Uh, I'm living here, so I have my own opinions. I'm also a San Francisco native, uh, so I like to talk about what the tech industry does to different communities. Once we address that, we'll move on to an update on the ongoing water crisis in Flint, Michigan, with a philanthropic update that involves Jaden Smith, of all people. Uh, And, of course, the topic that I'm most intrigued by today, uh, the untimely death of a 90s icon, Luke Perry. I want to start by introducing uh, our guest today, Andrew Conklin, a first-time guest, is involved in many things tech, perhaps all things tech. Uh, And he joins us today from Washington, D.C., where he is based. Uh, Welcome, Andrew. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, And with us, of course, as always, our fearless leader. Our producer, Eming Piancai. You're the best. We love you. I can't wait to hear you talk about stop. Luke Perry. <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> uh, so uh, we spoke a little bit before the show, Andrew, just because there is um, a lot of overlap in terms of your experience and uh, and your profession in terms of this Amazon deal. You're not in New York. You're in the D.C. area, but you do work in the tech industry. Um, As a a tech professional in the D.C. area, um, what are your thoughts about Amazon coming to town? Good, bad, neither? Uh, What what I've noticed uh, is that they've they've kind of picked an area, Crystal City, that is... Uh, has been known for um, Paul Singh and these other entrepreneurs and these tech, this tech center. Uh, so it's, it kind of, kind of fizzled a little bit and they're taking, they're moving into that. Uh, and it's kind of interesting to follow the Arlington uh, proposals there. Um, so I, I, I am still feeling it out personally uh, as it evolves um, to see if they are going to uh, do some um, uh, developments for the public. It, like, or if they're just going to take some off the top on the hospitality industry when they have a surge of employees coming in to like temporarily to fill in, um, which that's part of their deal that's shaping up. How does it affect you, uh, you know, just in your own inter- industry and professionally? How are other like tech workers talking about this? Um, are people thinking, oh, this is a great opportunity. We might be able to take a position at Amazon or this is going to attract other tech companies here and we could become uh, another Tech hub. What, what are people saying? Uh, I think uh, there's definitely a, there's definitely some of that where uh, employers, tech tech company employers, are a little bit concerned about having their their talent pulled away. Uh, and employees, I think, I mean, getting into the automation of information uh, knowledge work, uh, I think employees are uh, also very hyper intensive about what their next moves are. Too, I, the space is is, is uh, pretty wild. I, I feel like. We talk about who's at risk of like their uh, jobs changing very quickly. It's the knowledge worker. Uh, And this is a good example of like things changing rapidly. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about a knowledge worker and what it means 
for their job to be changing quickly just for people who are outside of the industry? What, what does that mean exactly? Uh, so knowledge worker does include the, 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 the tech person, but it also includes uh, like doctors, uh, includes people that just get paid to use their minds uh, to do work. And there's uh, 230 uh, million people globally that fit this category. And in the next five years, it's supposed to change radic- radically. So Amazon, with their cloud services and you know with their their big tech presence, uh, they're they're part of part of the players in the game that are changing the way that knowledge workers do work in the coming years. And what does that change look like? Is this the kind of thing where people are like, all right, now you know you can just use Watson to uh, perform open heart surgery, kind of like paranoia about automation, or is this is a higher demand for people with those skills? What what kind of change is that? Uh, I think it's it's like um, a lot of this like heady data science, uh, like AI stuff is becoming more uh, packaged and more boxed up. And then other other uh, skill areas can take it on and, and reuse it in, in their workflow. And so it's not quite, I mean, it's not going to replace the doctor. The, the doctor will, will be in charge, but it will uh, change the workforce quite a bit over time. Uh, I, I, like t- just today, I was at a, I'm, I'm in Arizona right now for a VR and healthcare conference. And there's a, there, so it's a, uh, MDs and, and techies in the room talking about, uh, like the Samsung and the Oculus and the HTC selling their headsets. And they're like, all right, all right, healthcare sector, you want to take, you want us to take you seriously. You got to buy some units in the healthcare <laughs> sector being like, uh, we are using scientific method and we're going to validate every step. So tough. <laughs> Right. Well, just uh, as a piece of personal experience, my mom is a nurse uh, late in her career, probably going to retire very soon. But because she's been doing this job for so long, she trains a lot of people. And very recently, she got a new training tool, uh, which was a virtual reality headset for new employees to be in the operating room, right? So that you can look around and inhabit that space. Uh, and she, you know, she's in her mid sixties, as I said, at the end of her career, she was into it. You know, the, the, the kind of people that I would assume would be re- like resistant to that kind of change. Like she was very enthusiastic about like, this is good. You can go into us for training purposes anyway. Um, you know, you can, inhabit this space that is, you know, that causes a lot of uh, stress and anxiety and new employees. And you could try things out and potentially make mistakes in a consequence free zone, uh, which wasn't really possible before. But again, that's, you know, uh, a training tool, but still it's in use, you know, and this is um, a doctor's office in San Francisco that doesn't, you know, they, they don't brand themselves as at the forefront of technology or anything. So I get the sense that those tools are being used relatively widely. Is that true? Uh, training and simulation. That's the, the biggest, the biggest use case. It's the one that, um, that they kind of believe in and the rest, but the rest are still like being figured out. That's like the biggest, that's leader for sure. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, I didn't mean to go on a tangent. I just thought, oh my goodness, I have actually have some relevant insight here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, um, uh, it, it, you know, as you know, part of the conversation in New York about Amazon does not have to do about, you know, does not have to do with the tech sector. Um, it has to do with um, displacement and, you know, the cost of real estate and the cost of rent and how 
uh, someone as big as Amazon can radically change a community. You talked a little bit about where Amazon is planning to put their headquarters in the DC area, but is that a part of the concern there? Is that a part of the conversation um, for HQ2 in uh, in the DC area? Uh, so with H with HQ2, it's on the other. It's like I live in DC uh, proper in the city and over the river, the Potomac. You've got uh, Alexandria and Arlington, and uh, I, I haven't specifically looked out looked at like the plot of area that they uh, they're planning to to touch down on, but um, but Crystal City, home to like Disruption Corp back in the day, and then 1776, a v- uh, an incubator and a and uh, angel fund or a VC fund, I forget what it was, but it was uh, it was just a huge community draw in the entrepreneurship community of DC. Uh, and then they kind of kind of disappeared. Uh, well, they, they're spot out, changes happen, but um, but their presence in Crystal City kind of disappeared. So Amazon kind of picked a, a part of the area that was already kind of trying to be a tech in the in the Arlington area. And uh, the things the things that I was kind of curious about was was how it was it was helping uh, subsidize housing uh, and like because these are big as you said they're big operations and like what are you going to lose when they stand up and they 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 change the whole DNA of that particular area um, you know like AOC is like probably the, one of the few Twitter accounts that I follow and, and I get alerted of like five different tweets every day uh, and and I, I think it's very interesting as like from an organizer an activate an activator versus a, uh, an incumbent politician and how that's playing out in New York you've got uh, Amazon uh, Cuomo uh, who's like oh no <laughs> we yeah. lost him <laughs> and then yeah. uh, AOC was like eh, good <laughs> Uh, so it's uh, true. It just seems and they're like members a, of the same party. You know, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not uh, ostensibly they're both Democrats. They at least bear that title. In some ways, we can kind of unpack that conversation with those two people to talk about the future of the Democratic Party itself and its relationship to, you know, capitalism and, and multinational corporations like Amazon. I think that's going to end up being the conversation over the next year or so as the primaries unfold. And it'll be interesting to see if Amazon is a part of that conversation. You know, the, it's also the, it's the, the big joke in New York is that, you know, Bill de Blasio, our mayor and uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, don't agree on anything. They, they have like very public feuds. Amazon was the one thing that they were able to collaborate on. You know, that was the one thing they could agree on. Uh, and the fact that it didn't go through, you know, people suspected from the start. It was like, well, those two were in the kitchen. <laughs> you know? Yeah. First, I mean, I personally have a bias. I am a big fan of the activator, the organizer, the founder, uh, and this uh, community group that I, I orchestrated called DC Night Owls. We, we were just people that wanted to get their own thing going. And they, and whenever somebody was quitting a Deloitte or Booz Allen or some large company, everybody would cheer in that room for them doing their next thing, doing their own thing. Uh, so like when I see that stuff, I'm automatically on like AOC's side of it, but there, I mean, I'm sure there's positives on the other way. It's just, it's just disruptive. It's just a lot of change. Tell us a little bit about, I've, I've heard, I read a little bit about Night Owls. It sounds fascinating. Can you give us just a little synopsis of what Night Owls is and how you guys got started? Uh, yes. So it was back, it was back in late 2012, early 2013. And I was a, a software federal contractor. And I was, uh, I was like, what did I, where, where am I going? You know, like, what is this widget world of scale government 
like projects. And, and so, um, uh, basically just started going to these, these tech, these tech, uh, events, community events that started happening in the DC area. And, uh, was just a meetup group, DC night owls. There's a New York night owls already. I didn't know how it was ran. Uh, so I just kind of like started connecting with the co-working spaces in the, the start of that wave. Uh, and the founders of these spaces would just hang out at our events. Uh, and then we just, we just got all this energy going. We had about 14 people that were helping out, putting on events. We were doing three events a week from 9 PM to 3 AM. And, uh, we got a real like feel that we were like the counterculture in DC to the political scene and the federal, like the federal, uh, all the federal work. Uh, we were invited to a white house innovation summit through Scott Hefferman, Heffernan, the, uh, uh, CEO, CEO and founder of meetup. Uh, so that was pretty cool to, 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 to participate in something like that. Um, yeah. and then there, and we got into a couple other, other quirky places. We, I remember being in the, uh, Capitol complex in a cafeteria where a congressman hosted us, Jared, uh, just became governor of Colorado. And I go in there and I, I had this like dirty room. I'm friends are coming over feel when I walked into that cafeteria. It was, it was trashed. I started picking up trash in this cafeteria of the Capitol at 9 PM. I'm like, my friends are coming over. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, yeah I'm, so, I'm intrigued by that work. I've always been intrigued by the work that uh, Melanie did when she was in DC at that, you know, bizarre, I, I say bizarre. It's not really bizarre at all, but that intersection of tech and the federal government, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, I want to please, we'd like to have you back on because I know this Amazon conversation is going to continue and I'm interested to see how things are going to unfold. Obviously it'll be many, many years before we know what the full impact of Amazon's, uh, second headquarter is, but I do want to keep an eye on that and who knows what's going to happen in New York city. Uh, I'm sure that we'll continue to have that conversation here as well. But I do want to talk about Jaden Smith, of course. <laughs> uh, not just for for no reason, not just because I like Jaden Smith and relish the opportunity to bring up his name, but because uh, another story that we follow on the show uh, is the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. Uh, we've had a few guests on to discuss this in the past, uh, and I'll read a little bit uh, of this report about Jaden Smith's involvement. Uh, which was complete news to me. Uh, but Jaden Smith is helping the residents of Flint through a new initiative. The rapper, I mean, he really has a, a pretty impressive bio. The rapper, actor, and co-founder of the eco-friendly company Just Water has partnered with a local Flint church to deploy a mobile water treatment system. Uh, apparently the timing uh, is pretty crucial too, just because there are a lot of resources that are running out. You know, 2018, there was a free bottled water program that was set up by the state that ended uh, last year. So they're looking for solutions. And I mean, I think this is a good conversation for us and for you, Andrew, uh, because you're talking about people, you know, and I don't know all the buzzwords, right? So we have people who are disruptors, activators is, is one that I'm hearing you use a lot. Uh, you know, obviously, we're we're rebranding political ideologies right so like liberal doesn't mean necessarily the same thing it used to but in this instance it looks like an individual you know jane smith the famous person uh is doing the work that the government should be doing right uh so i don't know that that means you know is this this is absolutely an example of a failure of government is it 
promising? You know, is it a good thing that a, a private individual is getting involved and that, you know, philanthropy is the answer here? I don't know very much about his organization, about Just Water, but I know a lot about uh, the political implications of water access and water rights as a global issue. Uh, so I'm interested in the context that you've been framing things, Andrew, in terms of outside, I'm going to use another word you didn't use, but like agitators. You know, what are your thoughts around someone like Jaden Smith coming in to try and help fix a situation in which government has failed so dramatically? I, I definitely am a big fan of founders, initiators, uh, people that jump in and want to want to lend a helping hand. Uh, one, I'm, I'm from Michigan, not from Flint, but, um, you know, like I, I, uh, remember a summer help job where I was making donuts. So sometimes I, like in a, in a donut factory in Michigan, Pillsbury. And, uh, so I'll like make these comments about like time to make the donuts and people <laughs> don't get what I'm saying, but, uh, but I get back to work. Um, so like, but the, the I mean, I think anybody that puts puts him down for what he's doing, uh, like why? Um, yeah. I do like so like when it comes to like the government was so so slow. I mean, they, well, first off, they made a very bad decision to switch that water supply over. Um, I mean, as as I understand it, I think the numbers are really good this year. Uh, the the uh, amount of lead and copper in the water is is actually not bad right now. It's like ninety percent is. But the thing is, government focuses on scale. They don't focus on around small groups, which perpetually are often, you know, they come up short with, um, you know, I think about church groups last year spending uh, a week in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico through a, um, a church group here in, uh, over in DC. And my like optimistic tech mind was flying in there thinking, Oh, this, this city, city looks, looks fine. And then you get into like the underserved neighborhoods and you're like, okay, there's people that need help. Uh, and I think it's the same, same scenario with Flint. And, um, I think it's great that he's, you know, if it's five filters or or a thousand filters, good, you know? I mean, I think it's admirable, you know, we had, and I don't think anybody's really given him a hard time about it. It's just the kind of thing that's like a punchline, you know, it's an easy layup, uh, to criticize a celebrity who's getting involved in an issue like this. Uh, but we had a conversation on the show about Kim Kardashian going to meet with President Trump about criminal justice. It's like, you know, initially people were rolling their eyes, especially people who have been involved in criminal justice advocacy for so long. And then I thought, you know, my defense, that whole episode basically was my defense of Kim K, which is, you know, she can talk about whatever she wants, right? Like she has a huge audience. Uh, the fact that she's chosen this as her political issue is pretty remarkable and should be encouraging for those of us who have been involved in this kind of advocacy. And no matter what your opinions about Kim Kardashian are, like, I don't, I, my opinion about Kim Kardashian is completely irrelevant. My opinion about uh, Jaden Smith is irrelevant. You know, he's a famous person with resources um, and with an audience. And to get involved in something meaningful, I, you know, I'm, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, I, it's unfortunate. I think my only caveat to that, and this is where it's different from the Kim Kardashian uh, situation, is I don't like the idea. You know, it, it kind of like gets government off the hook in some ways, you know, uh, when outsiders come in and solve these solutions. Not that I'm critical of those outsiders for wanting to solve them, but I do want to believe in the idea that that government can be effective at something as simple as providing water. 
you know, I'm mm-hmm. not for big government, but I'm also not a libertarian. Uh, and it would be nice if we were in a place in Michigan now where there was enough political accountability, where the government was working to solve problems like this. But that could also just be idealistic. Mm. I, you know? I, I have this personal view on local, state, federal government that uh, so I'm a data person. I'm into the I'm into the data. I'm into, into the analytics. And I've uh, heard some of these stories, uh, like a TEDx talk. TEDx I don't know. Uh, I think a city in Oklahoma. It was a Republican candidate that won over like data-driven solutions. And then like seeing these these uh, different parties, at state and city level uh, mayors and governors that would adopt these like uh, let's look at the numbers, let's come up with a plan, let's even like pass it to our voters and our constituents, sell them on it, and then now they've got something. Uh, at a lower level below their philosophy to hold against me to, to be accountable for. And that's, that's the stuff I, 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 I'm, I'm into when it gets into these philosophical fights. I'm just like, Oh, we're doomed. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I heard, uh, Zadie Smith on the radio last night talking about, you know, ethos and pathos and logos. And I think she was actually talking about diary entries and how diary entries are all about just the emotion, the pathos, and you have to introduce the logic. She was writing, uh, and I didn't know this about her. I like Zadie Smith a lot, but she was writing about popular culture. So she was forcing herself to evaluate her opinions about famous people. And I think Justin Bieber was the example, you know, <laughs> where she had like a, like a pathos response where she was like, oh God, Justin Bieber, like a lot of people who roll their eyes. Uh, and then she had to temper it with a little bit of like, well, let me listen to this person's music, you know, which I think is like one way of <laughs> a, a, a helpful metaphor, the Bieber metaphor for what you're talking about, which is like we get so lost um, in, you know, entrenched political issues. Like uh, I, we talk about this, we talk a lot about immigration on the show, um, but even people who are talking about, you know, changing our immigration system or are critical of um, our immigration system or want to build a wall uh, just aren't really paying attention to the fact that the the numbers of people who are coming across the border just keep getting lower and lower. You know, it's not the mm-hmm. crisis. It's a crisis because someone said it was a crisis and people, you know, had their own entrenched feelings about the issue that they wanted to attach to that. Not, as you said, if we could just look at a data map about, you know, who's really coming into the country, where the crises actually lie, it would be helpful. I don't, you know, I, I, I always raise my eyebrows at data. Like I'm always arguing with people about uh, Rotten Tomatoes, like that's my one. That's my main example about like, I'm like data. Is, <laughs> that's data the is, thing. <laughs> well, it's a good example of like how data can sometimes be misleading. I don't want to like wander into this fight because I feel like Andrew, you're you're gonna have a lot of pushback for me, like righteous foot pushback. But let me just make my point about Rotten Tomatoes real quick, right? I watched a movie the other day that was a 100 on Rotten Tomatoes. What was it called? It was um, leave leave no trace. Is that what it's called? The guy uh, and his daughter are living in the woods, and you don't know what I'm talking about. It's called Leave No Trace. It's a one. It's like one of the 100 movies on Rotten Tomatoes, and it was like an okay movie. You know, it was like a B, right? So if I was ranking it, and if most people were ranking it, they would say like, "Oh yeah, that was pretty good. I saw Leave No Trace. You know, I, I'd give it a B. I'd give it an 80, right? But the way that like numbers are quantified by Rotten Tomatoes. It's like either you give it like a good review or a bad review. And if you have like a movie that's like everyone says is like pretty good, it becomes a 100 because you don't have anybody saying it's bad because no one would say Leave No Trace is a bad movie because it's not a bad, it's just not an excellent movie. So like your result 
is that it's a 100 movie, which everybody thinks, you know, oh, that must mean it's the best movie anyone's ever seen. On the other hand, my counter to that is <laughs> now I'm really getting myself in trouble. I saw the Holmes and Watson movie. Wait, is it Watson and Holmes? The Will Ferrell <laughs> Sherlock matter. Holmes. It probably is. <laughs> the Will Ferrell. Uh, I heard people Holmes. walking out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I've definitely chosen the wrong example. I, somebody, <laughs> when we were walking in, it was my cousin was like, oh, yeah, I heard, you know, he didn't care. He wanted to see. He's like, oh, yeah, I heard it got a zero on Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> which you, I would think like a zero movie is like unwatchable, right? Like a zero movie is just like a blank screen where like the theater smells really bad and somebody's like throwing trash at you like that would be a zero and instead i watched watson and holmes and i was like amused and engaged the whole time like i don't remember anything about it it was like obviously completely phoned in right and pretty far from high art but not a zero you know, that is my long way of <laughs> saying that is not always necessarily the answer, but there are, you know, instances where I would hope um, we can map out a social issue like this and talk about, you know, where the need is, like in immigration, for instance, to try and counter people's pathos. Pathos is hard to counter, man. People are, we talk about this, it's a cliche now, but like, um, you know, truth is kind of irrelevant at this point, unfortunately. <laughs> it's a sad time. It must be a very sad time for a person who's invested in collecting <laughs> all the best data and then people are like, so what, man? Weapons of math destruction, that's a thing. It's a whole subject. <laughs> nice. That's a good one. That's a good one. Nice. Man, we'll use that as yep, our headline yep, for the yep. podcast. Every, every time somebody has a nice phrase during the podcast, that. we're like, all right, boom, that's our headline. So there's a, there's a book out with that title, by the way. I should, uh, but, you know, I, we, we won't, we won't say that you coined it and we won't say that we coined it. We'll just say right. it, it's appropriate. In the uh, okay. I want to make sure that we have time, of course, to discuss what I really wanted to talk about this week. Not that. Amazon is not important and not that the water crisis in Flint is not important, but I was really um, shocked and saddened by the news of Luke Perry's death for a lot of reasons. I'll just put it right out there. I was a big fan of Beverly Hills 90210. I think I was exactly the right age because they were older than me, you know? So I think maybe if I was the same age as the characters on that show when it was going on, I would realize like, oh, this is like corny, you know? <laughs> but I was exactly the right age to just think like those people were the coolest people. And he was the coolest one on the show. So, you know, there's that piece, right? Which which makes all of us sad. There are a lot of people who were, who were fans of that show. But when I was doing research uh, about his death, which is sad for a lot of reasons, Obviously, you know, he had a stroke. He's, he's he's a young man. I would still characterize him as a young man, not an old man. Um, but he had a stroke. Uh, and his death was uh, the result of uh, complications from that stroke. But in the, in the context of my research, I found this story, uh, which is an NBC story attributed to uh, Today, Today Show. And the headline is how Luke Perry's death is a wake-up call for Generation X. Right now, we talk a lot about generational labels on this show, and like technically, I'm not Gen X, and I'm also not a millennial. I'm somewhere in the middle, but I always felt, you know, spiritually more aligned with Generation X, probably because my older brother was Gen X, and again, I watched all those shows and saw all those movies at a time that they were just old. You know, like Reality Bites to me is still always going to be like exactly what the young person's experience should be. <laughs> when I fetishize the '90s, it's those, it's that kind of art. Um, so this is actually a pretty insightful piece 
that talks about, you know, and, and this is the language they use. Uh, Luke Perry's death has dropped like an anvil from the sky for Generation X. It's the first true sign that, no, we, the children of the 90s, are not invincible. And, and this is their word, not mine, gulp not so young anymore. That's uh, true. And that's true. There's a lot of irony there, partly because, you know, even though Luke Perry was playing a high school student, you know, he was well into his 20s, right? Which was a big joke at the time that all those guys were too old to be in high school. But also, uh, and he was still young to have a stroke, you know, no matter how old you are as a Gen X or 52 years old is very young to die of a stroke, but still uh, a relevant reminder anyway. So I wonder how much of this has to do with me thinking about my own mortality that my child hero died of a stroke um but i'm also just reminded of that show and of that time and as i'm fond of saying nostalgia is the fast food of emotions uh it asks nothing of you it is just pure comfort you don't have to analyze anything or unpack it uh, so I get to have a healthy dose of nostalgia, bittersweet, of course, because of his death. But I get to look back on that era and the art and entertainment from that time uh, in this context, recognizing, of course, that, I mean, I don't know, over 25 years. You know, I think the show, I think Nano started almost 30 years ago. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, which is a pretty stark reminder. But you knew I wanted to go to you first with this email. I don't really know why, but go for it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. Because when this happened and when we were talking about having a discussion about it, uh, you know, we you are a little bit younger than me. Younger enough than me that I could imagine, oh, maybe that doesn't really mean that much to her. Like, you know, not that you wouldn't be oh, sad that a person died. But, you know, I mean, it's a small window of appreciation, I think, even though that show was on forever. So I was surprised to hear you say, like, yeah, dude, Luke Perry, we got to talk about it. This means something to me. So please tell me a little bit about what this means to you. So obviously you said I'm a little bit younger than you. So I didn't necessarily watch 90210 because I honestly don't think my parents would have been down with me watching it at the time. It was scandalous. (laughs) There was a lot on that show for that time. Yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff I didn't watch. I didn't watch Party of Five. I didn't watch Melrose Place. Didn't watch that either. But I knew about it and the faces are in my memory bank that I would like see commercials for it. But um, after the show ended, like those actors, they went to other things, and a lot of them went to shows that I ended up watching. Like, this is going to show my geek card, but like Charmed <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, I, w- I would really get well, into yeah, that. Yeah, Shannon Doherty. Shannon Doherty was mm-hmm. on Charmed. So right? that, that's mine. That's how I was linked to that show, is that I watched right. her, and then she was on that show before that. And then, like, I would see, see Luke Perry, like, pop up in different movies or shows that I watch. I'm like, hey, <laughs> it's you. <laughs> well, if you like Charmed, you probably like Buffy, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so he Guilty. was I think he was the boyfriend in the original Buffy the Vampire oh, Slayer yes, yes, movie yes, 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 you're right. I, before the TV yeah. show so now who's showing their nerd card uh, <laughs> I'm going to watch Captain Marvel tomorrow I'm a definitely better nerd than you <laughs> Uh, so did you encounter him on others like do you watch Riverdale or something or did you did you ever go back and watch I tried I tried really hard to watch Riverdale I could not get into it I tried I sat through at least two episodes and I was like what is this this is not my kind of teen anything obviously now I'm too old to appreciate any of this stuff so I was like eh I'm good well I mean you're gonna laugh when why you watch it oh no I don't watch Riverdale (laughs) but you're gonna think it's really funny like my justification for being interested in it Mm -hmm. i actually really loved archie comics 
when I was I a can kid. See that. Like it, I, can see I read that. a lot of Archie comics. I think like that was, you know, the beginning of me becoming a big reader. Like I was like a, a pretty little kid reading, you know, those those novels. I guess I'll, I'll put that in air quotes. And I thought, oh, this is fun. Like a modern take on it. That's like a little bit sexy. Apparently it's like not a little bit sexy. It's just it's like weird. 100%. It's like supernatural. Sexy. And there's like weird stuff. I, yes. I follow the there's magic. The Archie's there, sleeping but... with his teacher. You know, like I wasn't yeah. scandalized, you know, I'm, I'm not a prude or anything. Um, but it was like such a wild departure that I was like, well, then there is no like inhabitable nostalgia for Archie comics to be had in Riverdale. It's supposed to be a good show. And it's also, I mean, you know, there's some humor and irony to be had that he's like the hot dad on the show. Right. Right. Like he's not obviously one he's of the come you full know, circle in his yes, career. Which is the same, you know, that happened with Matt. Yeah. That happened with Matthew Broderick. Right. Like he was, um, Ferris Bueller and right. then, you know, 25 years later he was the teacher in election who was like the most pathetic like the same kind of same kind of character as the principal in ferris bueller that's true oh age it's gonna put us all underground (laughs) uh so andrew i don't want to leave you out of this you are a gen xer right are you a self-identified gen xer does luke perry's death have any significance to you or is any of this talk of our our mortality uh resonant for you i i'm also on the line i've been told that by some that i'm barely a millennial but I, I did watch this sh- I did watch a number of these episodes. I kind of had a shift. I was like a Brandon Walsh guy. <laughs> nice. This, you must like, be very thing. wholesome. You're probably like a nice guy. And you're like, yeah, Luke Perry's character. Dylan McKay's exactly. an asshole. Yeah. Exactly. I learned later to relate to Luke Perry's character more over time. But when I figured some more things out... <laughs> But I didn't. Yeah, that was a. It's, it's a good a, personality <laughs> litmus test, you know, where you can like if you if someone's the right age, you can say like, oh, so who was your favorite character in 90210? Like you can know whether they're like a nice guy or not, and you can trust them. Because <laughs> if they say Dylan McKay, to be like, ooh, well, all right, I know what I'm in for. <laughs> oh, Emming, a moment ago you said something about Captain Marvel. Don't trust the data. Run, run tomatoes. I know because they they, uh, they pulled the the audience. Again thingy right so you couldn't like like because the the troll i actually read a lot of the the little blurps they posted on the, about the movie and and i don't know it's it made me a little nervous but i'm gonna go with open mind <laughs> so hopefully please please tell me because i don't know what is the scandal what's going on with there's some there's some data nerds probably mm-hmm. brandon walsh walsh yeah. fans yeah. that <laughs> have like spanned rotten tomatoes reviews before the movie even came out right. and they're trying to clean it up bad data but oh even, see? But, e- but even the uh what i noticed was like the the professional reviewers who were guys it was very like either hot or cold it was like there was no middle ground in their reviews i thought that was kind of interesting i've upsetting. only read i read the new york times review it was pretty enthusiastic um the new york times review was like very clear that and i think it was a.o scott the reviewer that they were not into the marvel universe and they were just kind of like over the marvel universe and then this was kind of like a breath of fresh air well, that's what irked me it was because like it seemed like in their reviews that they're like oh like you've done one superhero movie you've done them all i'm like well you did like 20 dudes like what's the <laughs> hell like what's one female we've had no female featured films at all and you've had like 20 wonder woman 
that's a DC film. Oh, Marvel. <laughs> it doesn't count for me. <laughs> DC's all right. I mean, that was a good movie. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I gotta stop because I'll, I'll just go for like 20 minutes on this and you're gonna be like, oh my God, we gotta go. <laughs> so just to There's say- There's always like, time to discuss these things. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna want to because I can go for a while. <laughs> well, the, the, the other thing- <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead, Andrew. Uh, the female audience is keeping DC afloat between mm. Wonder Woman and Aquaman. This is true. This is what true. A hunk. I like this point to see Andrew. We got to have you on here all the time because this is what happens with our conversations. <laughs> we start with like very lofty, important conversations, and then we always just like end up in the basement of popular culture for the rest of the time that's on where the I show. I live. That's why I like. Yeah. Well, time I talk I, is when you get pop culture. I blame you, man. <laughs> that's why I'm here. That's why you keep yeah. me around. But Captain Marvel is relevant to our '90s conversation because apparently it's, it's in the 90s. It itself is '90s nostalgia, be right? Like knee deep in '90s nostalgia. There's a blockbuster. Okay, so yes, exactly. That's I'm what I read in the else. review. She drops into a blockbuster yeah, video. Yeah, like, like the first wow. scene, I think. I'll go see her just to go see a blockbuster video store. There <laughs> are literally the second to last one just closed. There's one left. I think it's in Oregon. Wow. That's it. Wow. One. Down to one. There was one in Richmond for a little bit. Like, it only recently closed, like, maybe in the last year or two. It was there for a long time. What about La Video in San Francisco? That's Is that there. place still open? That's, uh, they... Yeah. I think they partnered with Green Apple. Yeah. So they like share. I think they're in the upper part of that building. I think. Yeah. Andrew, this the video was like a very like chic cinephile um, video rental store when video rental was a thing. They were like the alternative for snobs, I guess you could say. And I feel like that scene of people, like there might be enough of them to keep it going. But what are they getting there? What are they like laser discs? You know. <laughs> Like, <laughs> yeah, and vinyl, laser discs, and vinyl. That's, that's yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, that alone, I'm ready to check it out. And also, apparently, um, Nick Fury has a bigger role than he usually does. But then I kind of thought, like, oh, what? Like, is this an answer to you know people who are like, oh, yeah, like a female superhero that can't carry a movie, so you got to bring in Samuel Jackson to be a bigger no. character to be her crutch it's, or something? No, I was afraid just, of that. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very diverse cast, which I appreciate because you don't see that a lot yeah. the they're not part. playing they're not playing it up at all but Jude Law's in it yeah I'm in now now your enthusiasm has worn off onto me I'm, I'm like the very... damn shirt dude look <laughs> I'm excited wow. I'm hella wow. excited let me attest for our readers it is true she is wearing a Captain Marvel shirt and not just any Captain Marvel shirt but like a vintage Captain Marvel shirt right no, it's just distressed all right vintage mm, that's that's the only one you've got you're gonna wear it for 48 straight hours going well, I have into other the movie, stuff right <laughs> we're we're gonna go dressed up to this thing that's how my crew rolls when we geek out we geek out to like i'm impressed are you the one i think you're the first person who showed me the gif of her like i don't know she like punches somebody and like her hair is in her face and then she goes (sighs) and blows her hair out of her face and then continues on was that your gift share it's a good gift i think i was pulling ants at the time (laughs) probably why i used it (laughs) uh all right I will help us to claw out of the basement the 90s of hole that we've we fallen into and up. can't get out of. I like it. Maybe we should just rebrand as like a 90s pop culture show. Dude, right, I'm maybe down. That's... Let's do that. <laughs> All right. Obviously, I Andrew don't... is too. This wasn't even in your bio, but you've like come in with all kinds of priceless info once we got to this part. Of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Including the that there's only one block left. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to thank uh, both of you guys for being here. Andrew, it was a pleasure to have you for your first time on. You're welcome back anytime. We'd love to have you again. Beaming, thanks again for keeping us on task and to dragging us into the basement of 90s popular culture. <laughs> thanks Patience, to our listeners. I get, man. Yes, please do. Uh, thanks to our listeners. Until next time, Quest On, everybody. This episode of Quest On Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California. 